Got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast with Shay Hoodman, President of God Questions Ministries. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast. Your questions, biblical answers. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Vodi Bakum. He's the Dean of Divinity at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. So, Vodi, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. So, um, I've, I've seen many interviews with you on the topics we're going to be discussing today. Um, I love how you explain these issues. Um, your recent book, um, Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, um, is really helpful for me in understanding the issues, what's going on in culture and society. So I just wanted to have you on the show to explain some of these things. So uh, opening question to start, um, what is um, critical race theory and why is it important that we understand what it is and where it comes from? Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's an opener right there, boy. <laughs> uh, critical race theory is an ideology that comes from critical theory and critical legal studies, both of which are forms of, of neo-Marxism. Um, critical race theory basically views reality and America, um, American culture, American history through the lens of race and racism um, as the defining characteristic. Um, it has some central presuppositions, really four main presuppositions. The, the first one is the idea that racism is normal, the idea that racism is systemic, the idea that that um, America um, at its root, at its core, uh, America's original sin, if you will, is racism. Secondly, the idea of interest convergence, which is the idea that white people are incapable of righteous actions on issues of race and racism, unless their interests converge with those of people of color. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of a, you know, a, a total depravity, if you will. Um, the third one is anti-liberalism. And by anti-liberalism, what I mean is not like liberal conservative, but liberalism as in, you know, enlightenment ideology, meritocracy, objective truth, so on and so forth. And the fourth one is this idea that we, we ascertain and understand truth through narratives and counter narratives. So you have to elevate the voices of minorities in order to understand uh, truth within the context of this Marxist oppressor oppressed paradigm. Um, that, mm -hmm. That's, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, $5 answer to a 10 cent question, but <laughs> um, you, you got to understand those basic presuppositions if you want to understand what CRT is, especially since people are going around saying things like, well, no, CRT is just about having honest discussions about America's history of racism. No, CRT is about having uh, discussions rooted in certain presuppositions and premises. Yeah. So obviously we could do a whole show on each of the points you just went through. Practically speaking, so if critical race theory is implemented in our, our schools, government institutions, I mean, what would it look like? How would um, American society, and it's not just an American thing, this is being pushed in other um, countries, other cultures as well, but what would it look like? What would the change be? Yeah, well, critical race theory is a very American thing. The broader category of critical theory gets you to a bunch of other ideologies like queer theory, feminist, you know, theories and things like that. Uh, post-colonial, 
you know, studies and things like of, of that nature. But but critical race theory is a very American concept. It's a very American discipline, partly because America is one of the, the most diverse, you know, countries in the world and has very unique history um, in that regard. And, you know, what it looks like in terms of schools is teaching from a very specific perspective, from an anti-American perspective, and from a perspective that really gets into racial essentialism. It, mm-hmm. In the name of not being racist, we reduce everybody to racial stereotypes. And we say, for example, that white people are incapable of righteous actions in the area of race, which is incredibly racist, by the way, um, mm-hmm. you know, based on their whiteness. Um, so it, it really is a divisive ideology and, and it really is you know, an, an outgrowth of some other ideologies. So it's not surprising that this is happening in, in our schools. The public school system is really the 10th plank in the Communist Manifesto. Uh, so mandatory government education is in many ways a Marxist idea. So it really, mm-hmm. people shouldn't be surprised that a, a neo-Marxist idea like critical race theory would be taught in the Marxist government education system. So um, we, we've got so many issues tied together with this. Summarize for us, again, a whole episode could be done on this question itself, but um, how and in what ways, how, what many ways is critical race theory incompatible with a, a Christian and biblical worldview? Well, critical race theory and the critical social justice movement. And let me say this, my book is not about critical race theory. My book is about the social justice movement and critical race theory is a small part Mm-hmm. of the social justice movement. Critical social justice, that word there, critical, connects it to critical theory, which mm-hmm. is this neo-Marxist ideology that comes to us from the Frankfurt School and from you know Gramsci and, and neo-Marxism. So I want to make sure that you know, we're clear. My, mm-hmm. my book is not about critical race theory. My book is about the social justice movement. I know everybody's talking about critical race theory right now, mm-hmm. but that's just a small piece of the puzzle. And if you get bogged down on critical race theory, then you you miss the bigger picture, which is where critical race theory comes from. Um, It comes from critical theory. It comes from neo-Marxism, this neo-Marxist ideology. And so this neo-Marxist ideology is antithetical to biblical Christianity in a number of ways. First of all, when it divides the world into the oppressor-oppressed categories, for example, critical social justice movement sees the oppressive hegemony as white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born, all the way down to Christian. So Mm -hmm. according to critical theory and according to critical social justice, Christianity is the boogeyman. Christianity is the hegemonic power that oppresses other people. And so we have to understand that this is not just about race. The critical social justice movement is about an ideology that is rooted in neo-Marxism that divides the world up into categories of oppressor and oppressed. Just like Marx and Gramsci is incredibly anti-Christian. It sees in Marx's case, you know, religion as the opioid of the masses. And in Gramsci's case, uh, it sees socialism as that ideology that must supplant Christianity. So one of the reasons that this is antithetical to biblical Christianity is because it's rooted and grounded in an ideology that sees Christianity 
as inherently oppressive and as the enemy. Christian worldview is seen as the basis, the root of the oppression uh, of people within the context of especially American culture, but really even broader than that in, in Western culture. Aside from that, this whole ideology, for example, of anti-racism is an ideology that uses religious terminology like original sin and like redemption and restitution and, and reconciliation and things of this nature. It uses them in a very different way than Christianity does. There is no ultimate forgiveness. There is no salvation, for example, in, in anti-racism. Um, you have to do the work of anti-racism forever. Also, the work of anti-racism is about structures and systems. That's why we talk about structural racism and systemic racism. It's not about the hearts of men being transformed. It is about the usurpation of power and overturning power structures so that power can be wrested from oppressors and given to the oppressed so that systems can then be revolutionized and equitable outcomes can be achieved. That's not the gospel. No. So um, you mentioned two things, um, structural racism and systemic racism. And I've yeah. learned a lot about those from your book and some other reading I've, I've done. What confuses me is, and I'm confusion is not the right term, but I'm hearing a lot of mixed messages, even from Christian leaders who speak on this, whether <laughs> structural racism or systemic racism even exists. Some will say it exists to a certain point. Others will say it's all just a, a mythical boogeyman. So in your opinion, your expertise do structural racism and systemic racism exist? And if so, what would be the proper Christian response in dealing with those things? No, no not in the way that they're being communicated. Um, there have been times when we've seen racism that was systemic and that was structural, um, when we saw slavery and, and Jim Crow and where it was written into laws, when it was written into systems. Um, we, we don't have that today. That doesn't exist today. When people say systemic racism today, when they say structural racism today, what they're arguing is that disparities are proof, that the disparities are evidence that mm -hmm. the system and structures are racist. And so they don't look for other explanations. So for example, if you see uh, greater household wealth, or if you see uh, a disparity in dropout rates, a disparity in income, these disparities in and of themselves are the, the evidence of systemic racism. They, they are, as some would put it, the racial injustices that we see, right? And yeah. so in that sense, no, I, I absolutely reject the idea that disparities are prima facie evidence of discrimination, mm -hmm. that they're evidence of racism. You know, a great example of this is the George Floyd case. And this was sort of a tipping point, right? It was, it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And everybody says, see, there it is. There's the smoking gun. Well, what's interesting is Derek Chauvin went to trial and, and they didn't throw the book at him. They threw the whole library at him, right? Mm -hmm. But guess what he wasn't charged with? He wasn't charged with a racial crime. Why? Because there's zero evidence that what happened to George Floyd had anything to do with his race or his ethnicity. Yeah. Zero. None. So when people say that the George Floyd incident 
was an incident of racial injustice. What they're arguing is that because uh, there are disparities, apparent disparities in the percentages of people who are killed by police, that that proves racism in policing, even though there are myriad studies now that demonstrate that we don't have um, you, you know, racism as a factor in police shootings, police killings, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, there, there's there's much work out there, Roland Fryer's work and other, um, to indicate that that's absolutely not the case. But because they say, well, black people are 12% of the population, but they're greater than that percentage of the people who are killed by police. Therefore, it proves that the killing of black people is is racism. It's It's yeah. systemic racism. And with a situation like that, you know, you can have, as the literature says, racism without a racist, right? All you have to have is a disparity. That that dog won't hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've read um, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility and several mm-hmm. of the other books. And to me, what it seems like they're taking the term racism, which everyone or virtually everyone is strongly opposed to, and then attaching it to something that's really not racism in order to, well, of course, I'm opposed to systemic racism, structural racism, because it's it's racist. Well, right. it doesn't fit how the, the term racist has been used for the entire right. history of the word. So it's a very deceptive ploy, but it's effective in that, of well, of course, I need to oppose all these things you're saying is systemic racism because it's racist. But, well, um, and yeah, D'Angelo, D'Angelo brings another piece to the puzzle. She, she has a term she calls aversive racism. Now, aversive racism happens when you look at a disparity and ascribe as a reason anything other than racism. So, for example, if you look at, you know, dropout rates, graduation rates or incarceration rates, and, and you just mentioned the fact that out of wedlock birth rates and fatherlessness actually has some correlation with that, not necessarily, you know, cause and effect, but there is a correlation there, right? Well, the minute you start talking about those sorts of things, D'Angelo says, no, 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 that's aversive racism because you're trying to explain this disparity away by something other than racism. So, I mean, it's really this sort of, you know, catch 22. I, I mentioned in my book, the movie The Wiz, and there's uh, the Scarecrow in The Wiz. You know, every everybody's introduced with a song. Uh, he, the Scarecrow's introduced with a song, and the song is called You Can't Win. And, and the tagline of that song is, you can't win, you can't get even, and you can't get out of the game. That, that's Robin DiAngelo's white fragility. Yeah. White people, when it comes to racism, you can't win, you can't get even, and you can't get out of the game. You just are racist. And even if that phrase offends you. It just offends you because of your racism. Yeah. So a um, couple questions I really, really wanted to get to. Again, f- your book Fault Lines came out just a couple months ago and it's, it's tremendous. Um, we will include links to it both on our podcast.gotquestions.org page and also in the um, description field on YouTube. Just cannot recommend this book more highly. Hugely helpful for me. But very practically speaking with these uh, last two questions I want to hit you with. First, so we all agree that racism does exist, that there, racism still is a problem. So, Vody, what would you say, what is the biblical solution to racism? Yeah, I, I think the 
biblical solution to racism is repentance and faith. It's the same biblical solution to all sin. And first, we have to understand that racism from a biblical perspective is about, you know, to, to borrow a classic book title, Pride and Prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, it's pride in one's own race to the extent that we believe that we're superior to other people because of our race or ethnicity. And prejudice against people of other races believing that they are inherently inferior because of their race or ethnicity. It's showing partiality when the scripture tells us very clearly that we're not to show partiality either to the rich or to the poor. And certainly we're we're not to show partiality based on anybody's ethnicity. And the Bible's answer to this is a couple of things. Number one, we recognize that in the cross, Christ reconciles us. He reconciles us vertically to God, and he reconciles us horizontally to one another. The other thing is he makes us a new people so that Paul says, you know, in Galatians 3, that there is no more Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We also no longer recognize one another according to the flesh. We don't recognize one another in those ways. We recognize ourselves And we recognize one another as members of, first of all, one human race, right? Because because God created man in his image and he created us in Adam, right? And we all come from Adam. The other thing is we recognize that as believers, we're part of one body, the one body of Christ. These theological realities leave no room for and stand in direct opposition to ideas of racial prejudice, racial pride. And so these are the things that we have to proclaim and press into and hold on to um, if we have any hope of dealing with the sin of racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's excellent. I mean, I've been doing a lot of studying and like you said, Galatians, or even in um, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, about the body of Christ and how yes. ethnicity, race isn't a factor. Um, yeah. There's diversity, there's diversity of gifts, but those passages don't even go into race. We're all one in Christ, one body, and one body that um, glorifies God and ministers to each other and to the world best when we're serving together. So Amen. it's a hugely powerful reminder. And we so have for, to look, we, we have to, again, we, there's this new phrase that people are using, black and brown bodies, right? And they talk about, you know, the, the, the abuse of black and brown bodies and, 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 and we have to, you know, acknowledge black and brown bodies and how offensive. I'm not a black body. I, I'm a soul. I'm a person. How dehumanizing is it to talk about people as black and brown bodies? That's absolutely ridiculous. And again, we, we, we don't see or judge one another according to the flesh. And that phrase, black bodies, brown bodies, goes directly against the scriptural admonition. And it also dehumanizes and devalues people and separates people based on their melanin count. I, I, it's it's absolutely horrible. So my um, final, or you just gave me another question I might want to ask if we have time, but final question, and a wise friend has already given me a little advice, but I would love your input on this well. And you 
mentioned it earlier in terms whether we call them points of intersectionality or whatever. I'm I'm white. I'm male. I'm heterosexual, cisgender, yeah. no major disabilities, although some would, might disagree with that. So sometimes I struggle with how can I even speak about issues of race in the current culture. The, the advice I receive is truth is colorblind, that we're all called to speak the truth in love and being of a certain skin color does not exempt us or require us necessarily to speak on certain issues. But give me some advice here. How can I, as a white male, speak on these issues, recognizing I'm already behind the eight ball, but what are some pointers on speaking the truth and love on these race-related issues? Because I'm the last person the culture and society wants to hear from on this. Yeah. Well, we speak, number one, we speak as ambassadors, right? Mm -hmm. There is no truth that God calls me to preach because I'm qualified. I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, the, the, we, we're all twisted up on this, right? Um, and we're making some false assumptions. And first of all, I'm not, I don't, I don't preach about anything. I don't speak for anything or against anything because I'm qualified to do so. Mm-hmm. I, I preach because I'm compelled and called to do so by the one who is qualified to speak to and about all things, right? Um, if that was the case, how could I preach? If 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 we if we go down that rabbit hole, right? You know, I don't have the authority to speak about X, Y, and Z because I'm not X, Y, and Z. Well, now all of a sudden, the Bible is insufficient to speak to women because we don't have female authors, right? I, I mean, if right. we, if we follow that to its logical conclusion, that's where we end up. So first, we have to reject that thinking. And secondly, we have to press these issues based on the authority of Scripture, because we speak from the authority of another. And then thirdly, when people take offense, we've got to push back against that. For example, by pointing out the fact that, you know, the, the Bible can't the Bible can't speak to, to women. Um, the Bible can't speak to modern people because we don't have Scripture written by modern people about, you know, yeah. again, it's absolutely ridiculous. We, we can't get there from here. So I think we have to recognize that reality. We have to operate from that reality. And then when we engage with people who are offended, we have to press that reality and, and, and force them to recognize that the, the argument that they're making is really, again, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, it ends everything. It destroys everything in terms of communication and authority. Mm-hmm. So my final question, I mean, thank you again for that encouragement there because it's something that I, I struggle with. And um, so other people have told me that um, they feel so uncomfortable even talking about race-related issues because they feel like no one wants to hear from them. But the one of the previous guests I had um, introduced me to the your um, skin folk, but not kin folk. Even, <laughs> yeah. even African Americans, that if you don't toe the party line on these right. issues, well, you're not even eligible to speak. I'm, right. I'm sure you have experienced this, and I love in your book. There's an entire chapter dedicated to yeah. explaining your background and how you are. I know you already talked about not being qualified to talk about something, but you've had an experience which makes you an expert on this topic and multiple things. But tell me what it's like for you just as a, a black man to, um, in a sense, be told that you can't even speak because you 
or aren't, um, I guess, towing the party line on it. Yeah, I'm the black guy who hates black people so much that I've been <laughs> living and serving for the last six years in an African country. It, it's it's ridiculous. You know, ultimately, I've just had to develop a thick skin. Yeah. And when these things happen, when I experience these things in other areas, you know, I'm I'm not you know new to controversy. Yeah. But you know, when 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 you say things that people don't like and they call you names, a couple of things happen. Number one, after the sting goes away, you realize, hey, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing you realize is they never answered my argument. They just called me a name, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm not saying that that sort of makes the sting go away forever and, yeah. and that you and that you never, you know, you never feel that again. But I've gotten used to this idea of people coming against me in that way and dismissing me in that way. And I recognize that it actually makes my point. Mm-hmm. That's quite racist. If you know, also, is that I'm not really black because I'm arguing for ideas that don't fit within the paradigm of blackness. Well, mm-hmm. That means you have a limited, racist, stereotypical paradigm of blackness. Mm-hmm. So you're the racist, right? If that's you, if you're arguing that I'm not really black because I'm not towing an ideological line, then you have put all black people into a box and you're saying that anybody who does not fit into that box is not really black. That is the ultimate in racial stereotyping. Powerful. Again, Vodi, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, Again, the book Fault Lines, highly recommend it. It's available on Amazon. Um, We'll include some links to where it can be purchased and also include some links to where you can follow Vodi, learn more about his ministry, learn more about um, African Christian University and the other things that he's got going on. So again, Vodi, thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for your expertise, your words of wisdom, and your words of encouragement to me. I'm much appreciated. Amen. So this has been the Got Questions podcast. Got questions? Bibleize answers. We'll help you find them. Your questions, biblical answers. The Got Questions podcast. Check us out at podcast.gotquestions.org.